Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sergeant Jeff Fay was coming up to the second anniversary of his appointment as the officer in charge in Childers. It was your typical country police station of the time, a quaint office building, Jeff and three senior constables, and all the locals knew the friendly top cop. At that time, I was living in the police house behind the police station here, and across the road from my house was the officer in charge of the, um, the fire brigade. Jeff heard the fire truck outside around the same time as he took a call from his on-duty officer, Russell Sheehan. Within minutes, he was in uniform and standing outside the burning Palace Hostel. We knew it, was, it was, would have been full of backpackers at the time because it was nearly 100% full the whole time that it was there. He called for backup, but as backpackers who had escaped the blaze started to mention their suspicions about how it started and who might have been responsible... He knew this was something much bigger than a normal structural fire in the centre of town. We sort of split the whole thing into two components. One was was the town and the recovery and the fire itself, and the other one was a um, homicide investigation. And um, I remember talking to Bill, and I said, "Well, this is you know, which every fire is considered considered suspicious until it's proven otherwise." Did you um, straight away think? We're going to have fatalities on our hands here. Oh, we knew that, yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't some sort of thinking as people coming up saying, you know, backpackers and stuff, saying there's people in there, there's people in there, you know, yeah. You obviously hold out hope that that's not the case. Yeah, exactly right, yeah, yeah. And then when you, you know, you do that, you're sort of thinking, well, I hope it's one, two, three, you know. And then as we, as we sort of, uh, got the dossier together on, on, the, on the survivors and, and the people that they thought were still sort of, you know, growing all the time. Jeff and his team set up in the Childers Hotel across the road, hastily building a guest role and collecting witness statements from the survivors. We were able to put a inventory, for want of a better word, together of the backpackers that we located. And that was one of the things we did. We got the girls there and we identified who was there. And a lot of them were very, you know, with the differences in language, like French and German and whatever else. Um, we had to get them write their own name down even, you know, like I couldn't pronounce half their names. And at the same time, we asked them was, you know, who was, was anybody that you knew not here? And from doing that, we, we nearly got it spot on. By daylight, investigators from Bundaberg and Brisbane were on scene. And pretty quickly, there were numerous parts to the police role. So it went from being a horrible fire and a likely high death toll to, hang on a minute, 
there is a much more insidious and dreadful storyline that is now underwriting this whole whole tragedy. You had Jeff and the Childers crew taking care of the town itself. There were traffic issues, local businesses were directly affected, all the safety protocols that needed to be implemented, and they were taking statements from the backpackers. And then you had investigators coming into town as well. Some were starting the job of finding the man already being accused of lighting it as a parallel investigation was launched into the actual building itself and proving it was deliberately lit. The actions of Robert Long were what were important. We narrowed down onto that. And then from there is discussing with the forensic experts, well, what's the scene telling us about this fire? What's the scene telling us about the cause and origin? So that we can assist them to gather evidence about movement, about timings, about what people saw and what people did, all their observations in statements. So there's a constant period of time over the first couple of days where we were discussing in the incident room about these things, about well, what, what's important for us to narrow down on the investigation so that we can build a case either around Robert Long or against the coronial aspects which have to be touched upon as well. Because there's deaths, this fire was obviously going to be reported to the coroner. So in a broader sense, there were a lot of other issues that needed to be touched upon during the investigation so we could adequately brief the coroner on them. Rob Campbell was the on-call detective sergeant from the Queensland Police Arson Squad that night. He arrived in Childers mid-morning after the fire. It was two days before they had full access to the building. His account is incredibly confronting. You're one of the first people to go into that building when it's deemed safe. What did you see? Uh, lots of damage. Lots of damage. Um, I've been through numerous fire scenes and um, the, the scale of the damage on this one was, um, was incredible. The roof had been removed, obviously, but the trusses and everything, the ceiling, was just completely non-existent. VJ walls, so timber, solid timber walls, um, were just completely burnt out, which indicates massive temperature. A number of the bodies were severely burnt, um, which in a, in, a, in a fire situation requires high temperature and prolonged exposure to get the amount of damage to an, a number of the bodies. Yet at the same time, there are other rooms, obviously, where there were um, people who weren't exposed to the same amount of, of heat, but they obviously were, uh, succumbed to the, the smoke. Particularly that room seven, that was um, you know, quite shocking and, and is something that will stay with me, is, is the side of that room. But, you know, it's a, a job you have to do, you have to process it and then move on and move on with the investigation. So, but yeah, there was, there was a significant amount of damage to the whole, whole place. One of the more sobering images from the entire hostel fire story was the sight of a makeshift morgue being set up at the front of the building. Such was the location of the palace, smack bang in the middle of the main street. It couldn't be hidden away. There was no mistaking its purpose or the work that was being done just 100 metres from where the survivors were taking refuge in the cultural centre. 
It was a graphic reminder of the extent of the devastation inside the palace. Yeah, certainly the age of the building and the material that it was built from. Then again, it's the design of the building. Where that TV room in itself acted like a chimney, straight up with the heat generating straight up into the into the rooms above. But then at the same time, hot gases have come out of that room through the doors and windows and up into the open area between the front building and the and the, the middle area in a, the big open atrium, which has then generated more heat in the ceiling cavity, which has then basically gotten to a point of flashover very quickly because of the old dry timber and it wasn't designed in such a way to deal with a fire of that nature. Experience already told them a fire of that nature required a number of ignition points to generate that amount of heat and height. That implied arson. Their job was to prove it. I remember testifying in in one trial and they asked me, you know, how do you know this? And I said, well, I've, you know, I've set something like 500 structure fires. And the judge looks at me and says, um... Son, you might want to explain that a little more carefully because right now you sound like an arsonist. <laughs> well, no, Your Honor, I didn't, I didn't actually physically set them. I watched them being set. That's John DeHaan, an American forensic scientist who specialised in fires and explosion investigations. He's considered one of the world's leading criminologists. When I started with the state crime lab in 74, I was assigned basically to give first response to the California arson and bomb unit of the state fire marshal. Well, the first day I showed up and they said, well, we don't know. You're, you're brand new here. We don't know what you want to do. Go out and help the state fire marshal burn buildings. <laughs> I said, well, I can do that. Well, it turns out the crew of investigators that I was working with here in Northern California were strong believers in teaching fire investigators what real fires look like. So we had a number of, you know, vacant buildings and buildings that were scheduled for demolition in a huge variety of communities all across Northern California. And back then, they could get permission to actually burn these. So I've had a chance over the years to see hundreds of buildings burn and actually watch them develop, stand there with a watch or stand there with a camera and see what it takes to spread a fire. That's a pretty rare capacity. In today's fire investigators, for instance, they're never allowed to do live burns like that. He was well known to Queensland police, in a good way that is, having been in Brisbane meeting with them a year earlier. I get this phone call from the Queensland police and I said, you know, what's going on? He said, well, you know, we need your help in this big fire investigation. And I said, well, you know, what's going on? And he said, and I said, are, are they starting the processing? And he says, oh, yeah. They wanted him on the next plane to Australia. His travel agent said, yeah, it's possible for $15,000. And I said, no. Um, <laughs> so I called him back and I said, who's doing your scene preservation? And he said, oh, the, the forensic photography crew that you met. Oh, my God. I said, you know, who's doing the fire scene? And he named some of the some of my colleagues that were doing the fire scene. And I said, then there isn't anything 
that I can add that's going to be worth, you know, all that. And I said, just, you know, go ahead and have them preserve the scene photographically as best they can and document everything they can, like I know they will. And I'll, you know, be glad to help with the analysis of the ignition and its spread and things like that. So that's, that's what we did. So just to put that in perspective, this is mid-2000. Cyber technology was still an emerging business tool. Digital photography hadn't even come into play. Yet that's what they did. They took photographs of the scene and assembled a virtual walkthrough of the building so John could run his own investigation from his lounge room in California. It was magic. This is the first time I'd ever seen QuickTime photographic presentation and so they sent me the the discs and stuff and everything would click you had a little flat markers and if you clicked on the door it took you into that room and then if you clicked on that opening it took you out into the atrium and it was just like walking through the scene as if i had been there it was just terrific uh, documentation in many ways it was an investigation ahead of its time but through a combination of experience, a few algorithms, and the application of some physics law, John was, from about 11,000 kilometres away, able to piece together a case for the prosecution. David, how, how crucial was the evidence that arson expert John DeHaan put together? Very important. I didn't lead that, Ross Martin led that, but it was very important to establish that it was in a particular place so that it wasn't this previous fire because we could work out where it was that it was in another place entirely make a belief that it was accidental to two fires in the one place and that it would have to have been significant effort to get that fire going and then it was in a particular spot which was well away from where that previous fire was that is david meredith He was the public prosecutor when the matter was heard in the Brisbane Supreme Court in 2002. You heard him just mention two fires, and that's an important fact in how this all played out. You may recall back in episode three, I spoke with Lauren Morris. She talked about getting up at around midnight to go to the bathroom, and she saw her friend, Neil Griffith. On my way back up, I'd run into Neil, so we just didn't even say words. It was just like, ha-ha, pointed at each other. You had to go to the toilet too. <laughs> and then headed back to bed. And probably it was only 10 or 15 minutes later that I could feel the building shaking and glass smashing. What she didn't see was what happened next in that 10 to 15 minute window. As Neil is walking back to his room, he spots a bin on fire. It had been stuffed full of paper towels and one of the lounge cushions was sitting on top of it. Neil testifies that it's positioned like a bridge between the bin and the lounge chair itself. He races down and attempts to put it out by hitting the fire with the lounge cushion. There's no fire extinguisher nearby and no smoke alarms go off. He calls out to the man who was sitting in the room using the computer. He says, what the hell are you doing? He told him to take it outside. And so he watched him drag this, um, I guess it was just the lid of the bin. He watched him take it all the way out to the back door and figure, well, 
you know, okay, I solved that problem. That man was Robert Long. I'm very confident that there were other fires in that room and Neil Griffith only saw the one in the bin. And he's drawn the attention of Robert Long to that fire and Robert Long's then moved that bin out. But at the same time, there were other smouldering fires in that room. And that's supported by the forensic evidence that two or three pieces of furniture in that room were, would have been required to get the fire going in such a short period of time. So while he can't say that he saw more fires in that room, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that there were more fires at that time. It's supported forensically in that assumption? Yeah, so we have our forensic experts, private and um, government forensic experts who arrive at a similar conclusion once they've assessed all the information but also then backed up by Gilmore Engineering who provided the fire modelling um, which supported that two or three pieces of furniture would have been on fire to generate sufficient heat for it to spread in that short period of time. And 15 minutes later the place was on fire well apparently Long had come back in and frustrated at that first attempt, figured he was gonna he was gonna set enough materials on fire, like the furnishings, to to get the a, you know a real fire. It's unusual for prosecutors to visit a crime scene at such an early stage, but at the time of the fire, one of David Meredith's colleagues, Brendan Campbell had been working on a case in Bundaberg and it was suggested it would be worthwhile for him to head to Childers to cast an eye over the scene from a prosecutor's perspective. And he, um, he found that rubbish bin. It was outside in the courtyard, exactly as Neil Griffith had described. The rubbish bin was there and it was melted. It was clear. And Brendan saw this and said, hey... I know it's not connected to the fire, but I think you better secure this. It didn't appear at the time to be relevant, but because it was a burn, uh, what was this fire doing so far away from the seat of the fire? Because it hadn't been, that part didn't burn. It was a chance discovery, but ultimately a crucial piece of evidence in court. It correlated with Neil's story and proved that that bin fire that he saw wasn't what burnt down the palace matched John DeHaan's assessment of the cause, he said about backing that with the science needed to satisfy the court. I said, okay, I need at least three pieces, large pieces of furniture to get a big enough fire to do this. Well, how do I do that? Well, it turns out the only way I could do that was to actually have multiple points of ignition all about the same time. If I set one end of a sofa on fire by the time it got to the other end, the fire would be already dying out because those kinds of sofas and stuff burn so quickly because they were all synthetics. They were all foam and cloth upholstery and things like that. So my calculations and estimates was that the fire had to have been started at nearly the same time in at least three pieces of furniture. And of course that would account for the extremely rapid spread That size of fire, of course, would charge the adjacent atrium with enough smoke. And, of course, being, you know, Australia, almost all the rooms in the front part of the building had open transoms. 
And so they had the transoms above the doors open. So as soon as the smoke got to the middle roof of that atrium, it siphoned right straight into all of the rooms facing the uh, atrium. And because of the way the furniture was laid out, I think my calculation was I, I would have had to have three of those sofas all burning at the same time, each one producing about, let's say, three megawatt fires. That means I had to have all three of those sofas burning at the same time. Well, how did I do that unless they were ignited manually? You know, I watch a lot of people set furnishings of that age on fire and it only takes a few seconds. And then you walk away and let uh, chemistry take its course. By the time the matter went to court, every investigator all conducting an independent analysis of the fire, all came to the same conclusion. There had to have been at least three points of ignition with arson established as the cause, which meant the prosecutor could pursue murder charges for the victims. But despite the deaths of 15 people, a decision was made at committal stage to only pursue Long for the murders of West Australian twins Kelly and Stacey Slark. There were several reasons. At that stage, if you committed two murders or you've been convicted of one and you're convicted of another murder later, then the minimum parole period was set at 20 years. So to attract that, we had put two on the indictment. But the bigger issue was getting access to the DNA of family members and matching it to the deceased. That happened, but... It was going to be a matter of proving continuity of evidence. Because 13 of the victims were from overseas, it was decided that could be problematic in court. So it was a logistical problem. As it turned out, because we'd done all that work for these Slarks, the defence admitted that the Slarks had died, and we probably would have got them to admit one or more other people died and then put three names on the indictment rather than two. But there was another part of the reasoning. If things went bad in the trial, there was a mistrial, we could then proceed on other deaths if need be. Still, for the families of the other 13 victims, it was difficult to accept, despite the legal explanation. A lot of the parents of the backpackers from overseas were unhappy that we had not included their children on the indictment. We said, well, we've got to, and if need be, we would have gone back and done more if we'd had to. We didn't know at the time that the defence was willing to make the admission, so um, that's the reasoning. The only thing is, like, when you look at R, he's convicted of the two slack young ladies. No one else's names get mentioned at all, like in his official. So for that, that's quite hurtful for the families because you think, well, nobody recognises that my daughter or my son was part of those victims. Like, they're, it's the children's fire. Yes, there's 15, but it's only two of them he's been convicted for. So that's kind of sickening. Getting it to court was a process in itself. Kim Scubris covered it for Channel 7. In late 2001, over a year past the fire, 
the trial was actually delayed because the DPP and the defence lawyers went in hammer and tong over where it should actually be held. And the defence lawyers successfully argued that Long's trial should not be held in Bundaberg because it was too close to the scene of the crime or the alleged crime at that stage because they were were trying to say it wasn't arson and that it should be moved to Brisbane. So after much legal argy-bargy, the trial was moved to Brisbane and it was pushed back about five months to March 2002. The trial lasted 19 days in March 2002. The public interest so great, it was moved to the much bigger Banco room at the Brisbane Supreme Court, usually reserved for judicial ceremonies. The late Justice Peter Dutney presided over the hearing. The jury, nine women and five men, 169 witnesses from across the world, from survivors to emergency services to arson experts like John DeHaan. We ran it in the perfect order that we wanted to. We told it in a chronological, logical way. And we were able to do that because there was no expense spared. We had to fly in all these people. And we said to some of the witnesses, listen, we will not need you to next week. And we had to keep, con- we explained, it was throughout the trial, we explained why we want to call you at this point because it makes sense to call you then. They're all pretty motivated, of course, because. One, they lost friends, and secondly, which is always in the head, that could have been me too. Um, so they were very committed to the cause. I don't mean they changed their evidence or anything or told something that wasn't true, but they weren't. You know, sometimes you get witnesses who don't really care about the result. That wasn't the case here. They really cared about making sure that they told the stories that they were supposed to be telling. But as expected, there was silence from the man on trial. Robert Long didn't testify. Throughout the entire investigation, he refused to speak to police. 20 years on, he still hasn't given his version of events. Not one shred of remorse. I've watched and observed Long on many occasions, and the word that springs to mind when I describe him is pathetic. He's quite a sad individual. He's small in stature. He holds himself sort of rounded shouldered. He's not someone who would look overly confident. And he just looks pathetic. He is someone that we heard in the court case was quite quick to big note himself, was quite um, quick to tell a, a yarn to make him look like he was the hero. And even when you consider the drama that he instigated in the lead up to the fire, you know, he told the owners of the hostel that he had lung cancer and only a few months to live, so he was off to commit suicide. He was an attention seeker. And yet in the courtroom, he would not make eye contact. He didn't make eye contact with his father, Sid, who sat there much of the time. He didn't make eye contact with the gallery and he certainly didn't make eye contact with any of the witnesses when they were on the stand. And that's something over the 19 days I really remember. He kept his head down a lot of the time. And if he did look up, he'd look blankly at a wall. 
I remember sitting there trying to get eye contact with him, but he was just staring to the ground, which was a bit of a, an issue for me because I just wanted to look him in the eye and just try to make him realize how much pain he has suffered just by looking at him. But uh, he didn't let me, so that was a bit of a frustration. Spent most of the trial ogling our instructing clerk. You know, he was facing life imprisonment. And he seemed more interested in ogling uh, Sasky than he did in uh, listening to the evidence. And the only time I got any response out of him, that he seemed to be even paying attention, was when I was addressing the jury and saying, you know, pointing at him and saying, only he could have done this, only he could have done something like that. Um, and uh, he seemed to get a little annoyed about that, but uh, the rest of the time he just seemed to be sitting there just looking at Sasky and or getting bored and not paying much attention. He wasn't going to give evidence. He could never have done that. He was found guilty of arson and two counts of murder. He was sentenced to 20 years for the deaths of Kelly and Stacey Slark, 15 years for arson. It was the longest sentence ever handed down in Queensland for arson, but served concurrently with a non-parole period of 20 years. For me, being there when the verdict came in of the jury, that gave a lot of closure. And uh, I recall when the verdict was uh, reading out that I couldn't understand English anymore. I just I had to ask uh, Bill Trevor what happened. And he, only, he grabbed me by the shoulder and said, oh, he's guilty, he's guilty. And I just started to cry and yell, and I don't know what I did, but uh, uh, it was a, I was really an emotional moment at the moment that he, he was found guilty. I remember when he made his final submissions on sentencing after the jury found Long guilty of murder and, and arson. He made it very clear the judge had to take the 15 deaths into account. So when the judge handed down the sentence, in fairness, he had to go by the letter of the law. And 20 years is the maximum penalty, life in prison. However, he acknowledged the 15 and that was the human in him. Because how could you not? No one sitting in that courtroom wanted to hear that Long was responsible for two deaths. Everyone wanted to hear that he had been found guilty of 15. And the judge's remarks and the appeal court upheld this aptly reflected the 15 deaths. I have to say, it just brings home to you that when you're dead, your value goes to near zero. So that's it, 20 divided by 15. So that's like just running a bit, running a bit years per person. Well, he hasn't been convicted for the 15. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, but, the, but his sentence, right? His sentence for, 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 for killing those 15 people is about one and a bit years per person. That's it. That's, that's, that's what those guys get reduced to. It leaves a bit of a sour taste, but I can kind of understand it as well. Whether he's whether I would do if I was his family or not, I don't know. 
Outside the court, a large media contingent waited. The Slark family walked out together, arm in arm. It's hard to fathom how they must have been feeling at that moment. Bill Trevor spoke on behalf of everyone. Double, double murder and arson. I think uh, justice is done for the families and for the survivors. It won't uh, bring back those lovely young kids, but uh, hopefully uh, it will bring some peace of mind to those families across the world and around Australia that uh, have waited so long for this moment. Is it a relief? I don't know whether it's a relief, but it's certainly uh, confirmation in, in our system of justice. Certainly while it took so long, it started to play on your mind about uh, what was happening in there, but uh, I think uh, families around the world will wake up to this news with a sense of relief that someone will pay for the misery that they've brought to the lives of so many people. Can you believe Australia. somebody would light it deliberately? It's hard to fathom that someone could contemplate with so many young people uh, staying in a hostel to deliberately light it. Uh, we, are, we are fortunate that we didn't lose 80 young souls and uh, that could have been an even bigger tragedy than what we faced here. Our thoughts at this stage are with those parents and families, uh, the Slarks uh, and uh, those other families across the rest of the world. The prosecution tried to have the sentence increased to 25 years. That was denied. So was an appeal lodged by Long's legal team. They claimed media coverage had created undue bias in the original trial especially a story which ran on Channel 7's Today Tonight the night before Long was captured with his former de facto Christine Campbell, who we spoke to in the previous episode. Suicide notes. I think we've had at least 200 suicide notes from Robert and every one that he wrote, I never paid attention to. His father did. When I heard about that fire and heard that he was actually there, and he was seen running away from the place, I knew instantly that Robert had done it. Somebody had upset him or brought him down in some way, uh, and that's why I, I know Robert did it. Why? Because of what he did in Darwin. If he's capable of killing his own child or thinking about it all night, from nine o'clock at night till half past five, quarter to six in the morning, then he's capable of killing anybody without remorse. It was Christine telling the story about how Long had tried to strangle her while she was pregnant with their daughter and recalling the night a fire was lit under her caravan while she and her children were asleep in Darwin. It was in 1993 that Robert Long was charged with the attempted murder of Christine's six-year-old daughter. And although those charges were later dropped, Long pleaded guilty to a number of others relating to her abduction, to assaulting a police officer and to burglary. He was sentenced to four years jail and the presiding judge ordered him to undergo psychiatric and psychological treatment. The prosecution chose not to tender Christine Campbell's claims in court although Long's history as a firebug was put on record. That confession, scribbled on a $10 note, was submitted, but there was another one which surfaced after the trial itself. It happened when he was taken to hospital following that dramatic capture in Howard. We didn't leave this evidence at the trial because we didn't know about it at the time. We only found out about it later, that he said something to the same effect to a, a doctor who was an English 
woman who was here out in Australia for a year or so working in hospitals to let me die, I lit that fire. For the prosecution team, it further reinforced what they already knew. They had a compelling case backed by fact. Eyewitness accounts catalogued following an extensive police investigation. There was a large team involved in that. And you can't do that investigation without that team working well. And I think the success of the, of the operation, the success of the outcome, was representative of how well that team worked and got together and did what had to be done. How did you feel when it was all over? Great delivery life. It's, um, it's a heavy burden to carry. I thought we had an extremely good case and I would have been stunned if they hadn't convicted. In the end, it's, you know, it's, it should be the truth coming out, so it's the truth is revealed. But um, let's put it this way, I'd have been extremely disappointed and questioned myself if we hadn't got a conviction. And I'm extraordinarily relieved that he was convicted. For Jeff Fay, he's still in Childers. He's clocked up more than 20 years leading the local cop shop. Life went on, but truth be told, it's never really returned to normal. This is probably the most I've ever talked about to anybody about it. So uh, never, really, I've never really talked to anybody about it. Actually, just one of those things. That, is, um, is that because you found it tough to talk about it? Or? Oh, I don't really talk about a lot of things, you know. But That's just the way I deal with it, I suppose. But particularly the fight. Yeah, probably. The question's never been asked. I don't really dwell on it. There's a lot of people like that mm. around Childers mm. on that particular issue. Yeah, yeah. It, it impacted this community a lot, didn't it? Oh, yeah, obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's people to this day that, you know, surprise provided some sort of support, whether it was a roof over someone's head or whatever it might have been, you know. You know and it's like any times when, when the chips are down, particularly in the little rural communities, everybody everybody chips in and does a bit. And there'd be people out there that did a lot of stuff that I wouldn't even have been aware of, you know. You're too busy tied up in your own little world trying to get you. You know, trying to deal with with the day to day jobs and and um, requests and stuff that come through. The biggest regret I have it happened sort of whilst whilst I was here. You know, it sort of happened with a more patch and yeah, it shouldn't have happened really. But these things these things happen and, you, and you've got to move on. My thanks to everyone who took the time to share their stories for this episode. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran. Policing and the justice system can quite often be a rather thankless task. There's no doubt Childers is in a better place today because of the fine work they did to prosecute a conviction. Thanks to the Bundaberg Regional Council for its support of this project, Zoltan Fecho for his incredible editing, sound design and composition. And to you for listening, please tell your family and friends about the series. In our next episode, we'll begin our look at how Council went about developing their incredible memorial to the 15 victims of the fire. If you're ever in Childers, make sure you pop in for a visit. It really is a beautiful tribute. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.